Okay, as in go? Sorry, one second. Fork Tales, a podcast that feeds the food and beverage world. Oh, awesome. Tales is brought to you by Vigor, a branding and marketing agency for passion-driven, innovative restaurant, beverage, and hospitality brands. Learn more at VigorBranding.com. If you love what we're serving up, please give Forktails a five-star review on your podcast service of choice. Think of it as a tip for good service. Hey everyone, today I'm joined by my friend Alistair Levine. He is a partner in business development at Kitchen Sink, which we're going to dive into. Alistair, say hello. Give a little bit of backstory. Yeah. How's it going? So, um, yeah, I'm a partner uh, at Kitchen Sink. Uh, you know, we provide a suite of back office or outsourced sort of corporate office services for the independent restaurant space. Um, I also own seven restaurants in the San Francisco Bay Area as well. Um, so sort of get to sit on both sides of the fence, which um, gives us some, you know, both both uh, at Kitchen Sink and on the restaurant side, you know, a unique perspective and a window into sort of each other's worlds. Um, so, yeah, that's that's sort of a really simple high level, you know, about me. Um, I've been doing it for uh, two or three years. Uh, the restaurants are 30 years old and were started by my father. So, um, you know, really longstanding sort of you know, community-based restaurants. So, yeah. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I, I think when we talk to startup restaurants as well as restaurants that's been around for a while or a similar scenario to you where um, the restaurant has been started by the father or grandfather and handed down, one thing that seems to be missing or at least be a weak area, whether they choose to admit it or not, are those back office systems. It's the accounting, it's the bookkeeping, it's all the things that you seem to be providing. So can you unpack some of the services that you offer um, and how you got started in offering them? Yeah, so, you know, it really comes back to, so, you know, my dad before starting our restaurant group also um, was the CFO of Ilfranio and Gordon Biersch, two, you know, fairly well-known restaurant groups, had a Stanford MBA, so, you know, it's used to really high quality financials, a lot more an analysis. You know, I think one of the challenges within the industry in general is that, you know, for most most restaurant owners are oftentimes come out of the culinary side or or they, you know, they come out of sort of their, their you know, first generation or second generation immigrants to the country and they may not have like a formal business school education. And so, you know, it's one of those areas where there's sort of naturally just a weakness within the overall group, you know, or, or overall sort of community around these services. So, you know, the way we got started is we had one restaurant, um, you know, large 200 seat restaurant uh, in Larkspur, California, which is just north of San Francisco. We opened a second location down in Menlo Park, um, which is just south of the airport in San Francisco. Um, and it went from, you know, and this is a very common, you know, story where, hey, restaurant owners wearing, you know, a bunch of different hats, um, and a bunch of, of, of different sort of, you know, hey, I'm the COO, I'm the CEO, I'm the CFO, you know, this, this is a very common story on the founder side. Well, when you have two 200 seat restaurants, it's not really functionally possible to do all of those roles all at the same time. Um, so 26 years ago, he looked around, 
saw, hey, what, what do we have that's available out in the marketplace that could be a good support system? Um, you know, was disappointed in the offerings. There was, you know, obviously the big four sort of CPA accounting firms that existed at the time, uh, but nothing that was really restaurant focused. And, you know, there's definitely some unique challenges um, for restaurants, the volume of AP, the lack of, of accounts receivable. You know, it's a different business, you know, oftentimes custom financial calendars, 445, 544, all of these things also for probably some of your listeners are like, hey, what's this guy even talking about there? Um, but, you know, fundamentally looked for services, did not find any in the marketplace and decided, hey, I've got the expertise. I can develop develop a company. And, and that's sort of how Vine Solutions was born. And then Vine Solutions last year merged with Kitchen Sink, uh, really with the goal of becoming the premier uh, nationwide um, back office support uh, company for independent restaurateurs. So, you know, helping them scale, helping them grow, um, empowering them with data, and then not just giving them the data, but also um, providing services that help them leverage that data to deliver better results across their yeah. business. And I think that's the thing is like when you when you have one location, like you said, uh, many times that person is basically wearing every hat in the C-suite. Um, but then as soon as that second location opens, it really is, it exacerbates all of the weaknesses, all of the issues. You start to realize you are one human um, and that you actually need help. But then it just seems like the consultants don't start at that level. Instead, they're like so much higher, so expensive. And like you said, not, not as nuanced and high touch enough, I think, that restaurant owners need. Um, how have you addressed that scenario and what you guys do. How do you offer that high touch and that expertise um, yeah, with your so, clients? So we are we really focus on offering a hybrid model because as you say, you know, it can get really expensive really quickly if you're bringing in high powered consultants that, you know, have a great track record and whatnot. Most of the times the consultants aren't going to be the ones doing the actual fulfillment work either, right? So all of a sudden now you signed up for consultant, a fulfillment team, you, you just start adding these blocks on and and you know quickly quickly the dollars go flowing out of the restaurant. And, you know, as we know, restaurants are not exactly the most margin rich business in many cases. So, you know, what we try to do is, and, you know, certainly think we're pretty successful at doing, but, you know, others, others, others can judge for that is really employing a hybrid solution. So we're deploying technology first, wherever possible, if we can automate, you know, something simple like pulling sales out of a POS and pushing the, those sales journal entries into um, the, you know, general ledger software, QuickBooks, Sage Intact, one, one of the, one of the main accounting softwares, you know, that's not something where there's going to be a lot of value add for a human to do that work. You know, we want to audit it, make sure that the computer systems are doing things correctly, but you know, there's not a lot of value add there. So, and the same, we're also employing the same thing. We have an outsourced team that's overseas in Imdabad, India. Um, so they're really handling the large sort of lifting portion of the, the core of bookkeeping, data entry, you know, validation, uh, validating some of the, that technology is working correctly, et cetera, so that the onshore team can really have time to spend with the clients providing, you know, more of a customer service experience. You know, we're in the hospitality industry. We're servicing hospitality. Most of our clients have an expectation of the level of service their teams need to provide to their guests. And, you know, as a back office provider in that space, our expectation internally is that our service expectations are in alignment with our customers. So 
you know, we've got everybody from, you know, QSR, quick service, sort of fast casual places, all the way up through Michelin star restaurants. And obviously there's a wide gulf in the service that's expected between those, but, you know, really making sure there's a strong alignment there so that, you know, somebody's got an onshore resource that they can pick up the phone and talk to you. Hey, I saw this in the financials. Are we sure this is correct? My food cost shows that I've met 4%, you know, whatever that, whatever that might look like. Um, and, and they can get some quick answers so that they can make good, sound operational decisions off the data that they're receiving um, and, and really doing so on a weekly cadence as opposed to, you know, most financials are delivered currently on a monthly or, or, or custom financial period cadence, which, you know, leads you to making decisions with data that's six weeks old, kind of almost too stale for, for making those quick pivots and adjustments, which are so essential to, to profitability in our space. Yeah. So um, I, I am sure this is the same with you. I, I definitely have experienced a lot of, uh, let's say, horror stories. And I find that people sometimes learn better by learning what not to do than what to do. <laughs> so with that in mind, um, what are some common issues that you see with restaurant leadership that causes failure or, or at the very least, non-optimal results? Yeah, I mean, so I think... For us, the way I talk about sort of everything is, is is the numbers are the foundation, right? So they can't sort of, if if you've got good, accurate numbers with which to make decisions from, that's a really great starting point to be. Unfortunately, so many restaurants, because as we've already talked about, you know, somebody's wearing four different, five different, six different hats. Oftentimes, the numbers are the last thing that they're looking at. They're, they're you know, they've got guests in the restaurant. They're, they're touching tables. They're, they're, you know dealing with employee challenges. I mean, we it's, it's a never-ending sort of source of various landmines or challenges. Vendors, you know, are changing pricing or don't have availability. I mean, obviously, all of that's been specifically amplified by COVID, but, you know, it's, it's, it's that sort of shifting thing. So, you know, for us, it really starts with the foundation of everything is the numbers. They don't lie. They, they, they don't get emotional. It is a very clear, hey, you're either making money or you're not. And here's the areas where you might may or may not be impacting that, right? You can dig into your labor. You can dig into your cost of goods sold. Because it really comes down, you know, a restaurant is, is in many ways really complex, but in many ways also very simple. It comes down mm-hmm. to sales, cost of goods sold, and, and, and labor. And those are your three main sort of levers that you can pull as a business owner in the space. Um, and obviously, that's a gross simplification of what goes into all those things. But... That's really the core three things you should be looking at, right? And many cases, people are looking at their cost of goods sold, and they're like, oh, my God, I'm running a 40% food cost. But it's it's not actually the food cost that's the problem. It's the top-line sale piece that may be the problem. And so they may find themselves going down and spending, you know, going down the wrong path, spending a lot of time looking in the wrong places for solutions. Like, oh, man, if I can just, you know... Save some money on my cost of goods sold here. I'm going to deliver, you know, some great financial results. Same is often very true for labor. Now, of course, the the reverse can be true. You can be doing great top line revenue and still not dropping anything to the bottom line because you've got a cost of goods sold problem, or you've got a you know venue mix problem, pricing problem. There's a lot of different areas there. And so, you know, for us, that core foundation is let's see what the numbers are doing today because they're gonna they're gonna give us a great ability of where to start. Right? I can look and say. Hey, is this a reasonable level of top line? Okay, yes, it is. Okay, cool. Then I can look at cogs and labor 
and expect that those numbers should be reasonable as well. And if they're not, it gives us something to dig into. And so that's, I think, one of the areas where so many so many providers in this space sort of do one or the other. They, they, they're the consultant, but they don't supply the core data or they supply the core data, but don't tell you sort of give you some signposts or guidance about where you could go with that data. Hey, here's what your problem actually is. Let me help you shortcut that problem. Let's have, let's really focus on this over the next 30, 60, 90 days. And, and, you know, for us, you're going to hear me say hybrid a lot. Like, you know, that's really where it comes down to is like, you know, Hey, we're going to give you the, the data. And if, look, if you've got a great operations team, you're, you're a larger group, You've got an incredible director of ops. You might have some internal financial resources that are going to help your team, you know, create budgets and all the other things that they can do. Great. We're a great solution for you there. But if you're, you know, one to three, four locations, probably don't have that resource in-house yet, but it's not that it's not useful or super essential. And oftentimes you can really kickstart growth and really juice profitability just by having somebody sort of guiding that 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 tiller at the back of the boat and saying, hey, let's make sure we're pointing in the right direction. Let's make sure we're focused on the right things. Um, and, and that's just one of those areas where we, we don't, there's not a lot of other companies that are sort of wanting to, to, to put a bow on it and wrap the pieces together where it's like, hey, we've, we've, we've identified the issue and now we, we can, you know, give you some solutions on how to solve the problem. Yeah. So I want to, before we jump in a little bit further, because there's some important questions that I want to unpack. Um, suffice to say, listeners, none of this is financial advice. Uh, you should be speaking to um, your your financial advisor, your accountant, or if you're looking for one, obviously call Alistair. Um, however, what we're talking about is more high level. So it is not official financial advice. Um, with that said, I want to ask, we, we've been coming up against, and I've heard from others, uh, benchmarking here in 2022 uh, as far as sales and, and numbers in general. And what I've come across is a number of folks who are benchmarking 2021 and then, of course, this year against 2019 as opposed to 2020, which um, my hot takes are it's it's off. It's not it's not a good measure, mainly because 2021 was not necessarily a pandemic year. It was kind of hybrid in a lot of places, meaning we weren't locked down the way we were in 2020, but we certainly weren't back to the normal that we knew prior to the pandemic. Um, from your level, from the way you're analyzing things, how are you tackling the, the problem of benchmarking? Because you know, hey, it'd be great if we all slingshotted ahead with so much sales that it blew 2019 out of the way. But a lot of times I feel, from what I've seen, we're, we're actually falling short of 2019 sales, but much better than, you know, 2020. Um, how are you tackling that? So, so the one thing I will just say first off is it really depends regionally where you are at, because mm -hmm. that's one of the biggest things that's happened in both 2020, especially second half of 2020 and, and into 2021. If you're in Florida... Or, or maybe Georgia, where you guys are, Georgia, there's, yep. you know, very minimal um, restrictions. If you're up in the Northeast, New York, or you're California, you know, there were still extensive lockdown periods in, in parts of 2021. We started 2021 in California, still in lockdown through the end of 2020 um, with, you know, as we've gone through these wonderful waves and surges that we've all, all this terminology, we all didn't know we needed um, that we've all now become very familiar with. Uh, and so that I think that's really 
it's not such a simple of, hey, here's there's one right answer. I think the other big thing to look at is what segment of the market are you operating in? If you're looking at fine dining, you had a very different environment in which to operate in than if you were QSR with a drive-through. I mean, if you were QSR with a drive-through, your 2020 in many cases crushed 2020 or 2019, and 2021 in many cases was better, but again, could be regionally impacted. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I have a of a friend with a pizza place in LA. And, you know, he was like, look, 2020 was one of the best years we ever had. We beat 2019 numbers by 30, 35%. They opened multiple locations, you know, it was almost ideal, right? You couldn't, you couldn't drive up better. And then he saw a sharp decline in the start of, of 2021. Um, or, or, you know, as we moved out of lockdown in, in, in California, you know, in sort of February, March of 2021, um, because all of his customers had basically been only able to eat delivery for almost a year. Um, and so, you know, pizza is obviously high on that list of things that's getting delivered, Chinese food, etc. So that, you know, they, they, he was like, look, everybody's wanting to go out and dine in and sushi and all the other stuff that you maybe didn't feel comfortable having delivered became, you know, much hotter and, oh man, what a new thing to be able to go out and dine in again you know, and have somebody wait on you and not have to do the dishes or pack up the garbage or any of the other stuff after after taking a delivery. So, you know, I think I think there's a lot. It's it's not such a simple answer. I mean, for a lot of our clients, what we did is we for 2021's budgets and for now 2022's budgets, you know, we've looked at taking a hybrid approach where we took some of what the numbers from 2019 and some of the numbers from 2020. Um, for 2021 budgets, certainly that was the case for a lot of clients as we did for the first half of the year as a 2020 uh, budget, not necessarily back to, to the early days of where everything was in full lockdown, but but right after that. Um, mm-hmm. And then we sort of layered in some 2019 for Q3, Q4. You know, unfortunately, we had another Omicron surge. And so that, you know, heavily disrupted some of some people's Q4s. Um, for a lot of our clients, they were able to sort of weather that and just had an impact right after in, in early January, which was Clearly ideal for those that that that's where that worked out for. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's it's been it's been interesting to watch how highly regionalized um, this has been. I mean, even even within the state of California, you know, if you go out to the Central Valley, you're not likely to see masks in place and people are out. Mm-hmm. Life sort of feels semi-normal versus if you're in San Francisco or L.A. or or one of the sort of coast you know true coastal cities, you're you know you're going to still see mask mandates, etc. So. You know, I think that's that's where, again, this is where having a you know a team of professionals is super helpful who can look at you know we we support about 400 restaurant locations. You know, we can look at a much larger sample size um, and and sort of make some 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 decisions that aren't just sort of in an individual location or a small collection of locations. Um, but yeah, there's not there's not one easy simple answer that's like, hey, this is the right way to do it. Mm-hmm. As always, it's it's worth looking at the data and, and, and having the data inform sort of that decision. Yeah, it's a good point. Um, <clears throat> I think what's interesting as well is there's the literal impediments, that, like some of which you mentioned, which is mask mandates, shutdowns, uh, no no uh, on-prem dining, and all that. And we saw a, a number of things happen as a result. They, there's, of course, behavioral shifts. Like you said, uh, the, the drive-thrus were a savior. I mean, if you had a drive-thru, we, we saw this firsthand. You were thumping. Uh, during the pandemic, um, 
but also a drastic shift to off-prem dining, delivery, um, so on and so forth. But when you take away those very objective impediments, there, there's an underlying uh, behavior that I think not a lot of folks are talking about, which is the reticence or, or the hesitance to go back, even though you're allowed to now. It's more, well, I'm more comfortable getting it at home now, and COVID's still a thing, so I really don't want to go to the location. And that's something that we have been trying to fight as well, and that definitely has some influences on the you know those sales and how you're benchmarking and how you're measuring overall. Yeah, I, think it, I think it really depends on what customer segment you're serving, right? I mean, if you've got younger consumers, they, they've shown a much larger willingness to come back in droves. Um, versus if you've got older consumers, they you know they're potentially far more concerned because you know the impact could be death as opposed to you know what from a younger generation in general is more sort of flu flu cold. Not yeah. that there's not exceptions to that, but you know, broad statistically speaking, that's sort of what the the outcomes look like. So I think that plays a huge role. Um, but look, I think consumer behaviors also fundamentally change. You don't mm-hmm. you don't have behavior exist one way for two you know eighteen months, two years depends again regionally where you are. But that's a lot of time to retrain behavior, right? I mean, I think you know I forget what they say it is to create a new habit. It's thirty days of doing the mm-hmm. same thing. I mean, you have well in excess of of new habit forming behavior. And a lot of it was driven by convenience. I mean, you think about how groceries are being delivered now that. That did not have widespread adoption. You know, Uber Eats and DoorDash, you know, that that those things sort of went mainstream or didn't sort of they went mainstream through as a result of the pandemic. And you know, I I continue to think that you know there there's a lot of restaurants out there that are still sort of expecting to go back to 2019. I think we all sort of finally look back on it now with 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 wish, wishful thinking. We still mm-hmm. have lots of issues with 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 challenges with finding bodies and labor to work in in the restaurants we we had many of the same issues that we're encountering today a little less of inflation but you know other than that very similar and and yet you know i think we've all sort of collectively forgotten about that um and i think a lot of people haven't necessarily updated their business models to reflect that you know we're moving from a simple a, a traditional model of on-prem to on all on-premise dining, dri- driving that to a full omni-channel model, which is the same thing that happened to retail 10 years ago. I mean, you mm-hmm. saw, you know, hey, it used to be you'd go down to your local store, you'd buy whatever you were going to buy, and then Amazon and Etsy and Walmart and Shopify all launched large, you know, third-party aggregation, effectively, businesses. Amazon doesn't sell. Most, most of the stuff on Amazon is not shipped and sold by Amazon. It's by other sellers fulfilled by them. And so, you know, the same is going to happen with restaurants. We're already seeing that DoorDash and Uber Eats are playing a very similar role to Amazon and others where they're generating a huge amount of foot traffic digitally. You know, they become sort of the marketplace that you start your search for. I mean, this is exactly what Amazon did, where it was like, hey, I need to go order something. Oh, I'm a Prime member. I'm going to go on Amazon Prime and and order it. We're seeing exactly the same thing. Dash Pass, you know, Eats Eats Pass on Uber Eats, etc., then we're going to see the same sort of issues in the marketplace where that those middle ground brands, um, the Sears, if you will, the JCPenney's, if you will, um, on the retail side, you know, struggled mightily because there wasn't a strong, compelling reason with which to go to them for a worse, less convenient experience than there was to just order online. Um, and then you had brands, you know, that have done well 
that are you know direct to consumer. There's there's all this new opportunity that comes out of that as well. So you know I think we're we're about we're just entering the sort of initial phase of that in the restaurant space. Where we're going to look start looking at you know you know revenue per square foot will become a big metric because you know especially if you're in the QSR space. You should expect, I mean, I think Chipotle said they did on their most recent quarterly report, you know, 50-something percent of their sales were outside the four walls where a takeout or delivery transaction. You know, Jack and Box's CEO has come out and said 98% of their sales are either delivery or drive drive-through sales, and they don't anticipate building more restaurants with internal seating going forward. Um and so, you know, when we look at all of those types of things, it's, it's, and look, those are obviously two very large things. They're not independent restaurants, right. but it sort of, it, it gives us a good barometer of where we, we can anticipate that the world might end up. Um, you know, we've got ghost kitchens, all these, all this stuff. There's all this, these changes. But I think what's really critical for the independent restaurant space to really think about is, um, how are you providing an exceptional experience for your guests that's differentiated? And then you're going to need to embrace some of these online ordering technologies. I'm not necessarily saying go on DoorDash or Uber Eats, but you know, what is your native delivery solution? What is your native online ordering solution? Because what you really want to own is those customer relationships. You're able to market to them. You're able to sell to them. You can identify who they are. Hey, I'm having a lot of customers coming from a certain portion of the city where I don't currently have a location. Oh, that would be a great spot to open another second location, right? You can you can better believe that DoorDash and Uber Eats and all of those uh, companies are heavily leveraging data and, and are going to start competing directly. They're already starting this with with existing independent restaurants, and so you know, I think there's an area where we need to update sort of our own internal models that will mm-hmm. we'll have a model that will look different than it looked like in 2019. Yeah, I, I see it as well. I mean, especially because you can get such great food so quickly delivered to your door. The question becomes like, why should I want to sit in your restaurant? And that's not meant to be provocative in a negative way. It's meant to be a challenge. Like it should be worthwhile in, in a, a situation sort of like, hey, I got this hamburger from this place. It's pretty great. And your friend says, yeah, but you got to eat it there because X, Y, and Z. You yeah, know, or, something or, or, remarkable. Or service or there's, you know, live music or there's some sort of like, you know, the you know the vibe is, is a big, you know, everybody talks about, oh man, that place has got a serious vibe, right? You yep. want to go and hang out. You know, it's sort of your, your spot. You feel comfortable there. You know, look, I think for fundamentally, we're social creatures. We want to hang out with other people. I mean, not all of us do all the time, but but definitely there's an element of like, you know, you want, we want to hang out with other people. And so I think, you know, where I see, you know, sort of those third-party aggregators, you know, are going to continue to sort of have a, they're going to own 20, 25% of the meal period market. The other big thing that sort of pay attention to is grocery gained a lot of market share during the pandemic and have, and have moved heavily into prepared foods. And so, you know, you go in your average Whole Foods now or whatever your sort of regional local chain is that does a similar thing. You know, almost a third of that store now is prepared foods of various sorts, right? They've got the mm-hmm. taqueria, they've got the pizzeria, they've got the deli, they've got, you know, all the, the hot bar, the cold bar, the salad bar, the and then all the prepared heat and, heat and serve section, right? Those are all direct competitors of restaurant spaces and restaurant meal periods. And so, you know, again, it's all driven by convenience. There's some ghost kitchen operators that have opened now in, like, in Ralph's in Southern California. You can place your order when you walk in, do all your grocery shopping, pick up a hot meal ready to take home that was cooked fresh for you. 
I mean, that's definitely something that's going to come. You know, they can bundle those delivery transactions with other food as well. Hey, I'm ordering from Instacart. I'm ordering my week's groceries as well as dinner for tonight because I'm just not going to have time. I, mean, I think the other right. thing we're going to see is, you know, hey, you're a, you're a, you're a busy working mom or, or dad. You're on your way home from the office. You've swung by, picked up the kids from soccer practice, and you've, you're sitting in traffic for half an hour to get home. Well, hey, you can pull out your phone. You can make a quick decision on dinner. Everybody can order what they want, and it's sitting there when you get home or, or shortly thereafter. You know, that's that's a behavior that's not going to go away. I mean, I, I think especially as we see return to work, return to, you know, you still have the whole tons of people working remotely. Um, mm-hmm. You still have some limited, you know, again, regionally, all of this is, is, is different. But, you know, you still have, you know, some limitations in many cases on on extracurricular activities for for kids you know as all of that comes roaring back and, and we know it will you know that that time pressure is going to come back and 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 there's going to continue to be that sort of those opportunities there to to address um those consumers who are who are busy and and who, who you know who don't have time to cook yeah that's great thinking and i see it as well i i do see a world too where the the brands or just the restaurants that have simply opened with the baseline need of um, servicing sustenance, they really are going to fall away. There's just nothing remarkable. I think the ghost kitchens or the cloud kitchens are going to eat them up. Um, You did mention something earlier that I'd like to unpack before we uh, land this plane, and it was something about labor. And I think this is a big hot topic right now. We're having a labor problem. It persists. Some of it, I think, is the problem of the restaurant industry as a whole. Um, But it it tends to get zeroed in on we don't pay people enough for a certain group and that another group says, no, that's just the way the market works, whatever. Um, I'd love to know what camp you're in when it comes to minimum wage and what you think the repercussions of a federal minimum wage could do, positive or negative. I mean, I think, truthfully, the minimum wage has already fundamentally moved, whether the federal one has moved or not. You look at a company like Amazon who's hiring hundreds of thousands, millions of people, they're paying $15 an hour as a starting you know, minimum wage. You know, you look at a large group like in and out they've moved their minimum wage heavily. Uh, you know, there are multiple large franchisor or franchisees that have done similar things now. Um, again, look, there's some regional variation, but in general... Yeah, I think that ship has sort of sailed, whether we want to acknowledge it or not. Um, I think, you know, where it changes from a federal minimum wage standpoint is how that impacts salaried employees, uh, which is a more complex sort of issue of, hey, this person's salary and they've got to make a certain multiple of the hourly minimum wage. Um, That's not sort of yet being felt, but certainly will be. Um, You know, so I think, look, I I think, again, everybody can fight or whatever else. I think I think the, the horse is out of the barn on, on the $15 an hour sort of minimum. Um, and then if you're in a, in a large city and you want to hire a dishwasher, you want to hire a line cook, you're just not finding them for that price point. And so the right. question is, would you like the person or would you not like the person? And, you know, for most people, they want the person. I think, you know, what we're going to see, and this is going to be the challenge, is I think, you know, historically 35% food cost and 25% labor cost to get you to your 60% prime cost was the sort of that was the that was the way the model worked for a great variety of full service restaurants, right? I think what we're going to see is that labor is going to eclipse the cost of goods sold, and you're going to have a flip, and and you're going to see more like twenty twenty five percent food cost, 
and more like 30, 35% labor costs. I think that's really already happened or is happening, but not everybody's updated their models, updated their budgets to sort of reflect that that's the case. Um, and look, I think in some categories, there's going to be a bunch of automation. I think that it'll be curious to see how that plays out. Just because, you know, if you're, if you're a fast food restaurant, you know, your model sort of only supports certain, certain things. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I think that's, there, there's a lot of moving pieces. I think anytime you put pressure in a specific area, you're going to have unintended consequences. And so, you know, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. But I mean, fundamentally, if you want to, if you're, if you're willing to pay, you're going to find people to fill your jobs. If you're not willing to pay, you're going to struggle to do that. And, and, you know, we can see that over and over again with national news story after national news story. And, um, you know, I think there's also a bunch of people who are still sitting on the sidelines as, as we go through wave after wave. You know, maybe they have, you know, at-risk populations at home. Maybe they themselves are at, at risk. Um, and then I think there's been a big regional reshuffling where, if you know, you are a hospitality employee were you going to sit and hang out in California and see when the restrictions were going to ease? Or were you going to look to go to, to, to Arizona or Las Vegas or somewhere else? Right. And, and I think the same is true on the East coast. You know, if you, did you hang out in New York city or no, Florida, all of a sudden Miami, I mean, you can see this, you can see this, what's happening. You know, look at the sheer number of restaurants that have opened in Miami from the pandemic forward and look at how many of those are run by New York operators who are Absolutely. Sort of looking for other other opportunities, right? And the, I'm sure that's happened in Atlanta. I mean, it's definitely, but then there's been some regional reshuffling. We've seen that in congressional seats and how those have changed as well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, look, our, our industry, the, the great part about it is we will take absolutely anybody. If you've got a checkered past and you're willing to show up and work hard and show up on time, we're going we're gonna to take you in. We're going to help teach you some skills and we're going to give you, you know, potentially a great career, depending on, on sort of what that looks like for you. And certainly there's plenty of opportunity in, in the space. Um, and I think we as an industry do a terrible job sort of telling people. That, I mean, we're oftentimes the first job for for most, you know, most people. It's retail or us. Retail's really fallen off. So it's oftentimes now us. Right. You're 16 years old. You're 17 years old. You're working at a fast food place, whatever that looks like. Um, or the same is true for sort of first generation, second generation immigrants, the same kind of deal. Like we're the foot in the door to, on the path towards that American dream. And one of the few sort of industries, I would say, where that's still pretty readily achievable, where you, know, you can you can start out as an hourly dishwasher and work your way up and, you know, get to a point where, you know, you, you could potentially own your own business. Um, you might might start out small, might be a taco truck, it might be something like that. But, you know, that is still a very realistic pathway within within our industry. And we just don't talk about it that much. We don't promote it that much. You know, we sort of let the large chains and franchisors really tell our story for us. And and it's very different than the independent space where there's you know, that sort of feeling of family. Oftentimes, most of those independents are oftentimes are run by a family. So they're using a lot of family labor as well. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think that's the other pieces is we, we've got to, we've got to do a better job telling our story to the potential next generation of, of candidates, let's say, who are still in high school or, or, or community college or middle school or whatever, and get them excited about what the industry can provide for them. Cause it can be a lot of fun. It's a lot of hard work, but it can be a lot of fun. And, and I think we've sort of gotten a bad reputation 
because we have some you know definite bad actors in the space. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's that's what you touched on is pretty strong. And I think a lot of brands, a lot of leaders, they they go right to the money. And it's this is what you could make. It's so flat and so one-dimensional when there are so many other dimensions in this industry, like you said, that the paths ahead are plentiful. And we don't no one really talks about it enough. I mean, I would say I would even challenge the uh, the, the larger corporations to do a better job of it as well, um, because this really is a place where you can come in unskilled and you could thrive. And it truly is maybe one of the last uh, areas where meritocracy is alive and kicking, you know. And with that, with the the minimum wage conversation, you know, I'm, I'm a proponent of letting the market decide, you know. And, and I've you know been vocal about this in that if you do a federal minimum wage, well, fifteen dollars an hour in LA is below pro- poverty. Yeah. Fifteen dollars in Bentonville, Arkansas is yeah. a pretty good living. Yeah. You know, and so you just can't have this one size fits all across the nation. And I think what you mentioned is all the influences out there really are are the free market at play. You know, uh, Florida stayed open. Some people maybe hate that. Some people probably love that. But the fact is, is you're seeing people go to where the opportunity is. And you know, I, I've heard this said before, and I always laugh when I hear it. And I agree with it. There is a minimum wage. It's zero. If you put a job out there for no pay and someone takes it, that's the minimum wage. And I think what, what you've alluded to is people in some of these cities like L.A., or they will not take that job because it will not get them what they need to live. And so the free market works, in my opinion. Yeah, and look, I mean, I think where, where the only thing I would say about having a minimum is it does prevent some of those bad actors from taking advantage of some of the um, – populations that our industry naturally attracts those first generation immigrants who maybe don't know what the legal requirements are you know that don't know what some of those other pieces are i I do think that there needs to be more of a a conversation with legislation than there is currently because it and there needs to be some more nuance unfortunately you know one of the biggest problems is you know legislation is passed by people who lobby for legislation those people are generally the ones who are most able to deal with compliance, whereas the independent operators are least able to deal with it. And they're generally not trying to do the wrong thing. Again, there's definitely bad actors. I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm, you know, they, they, there, there's, there should be a look at, you know, Hey, is this person a serial bad actor or, you know, Hey, I screwed up. I didn't realize the law changed a few months ago. And all of a sudden now I'm underpaying my person clearly not ideal, but wasn't clearly my intention. Right. And, you know, I think people underestimate, in general, sort of voting populace underestimates the sheer quantity. You know, we, we see this on our HR compliance side, the sheer quantity of laws and legislation that changes. And it's different. You know, if I'm zooming into a restaurant in Santa Barbara, Santa Barbara has different requirements than, than, than Ventura County, has different requirements than the state of California, right? And so there's all this like local nuance and it's like, hey, you may not open, realize you're opening another location slightly in a different county in a different town. Oh man, there's like this whole extra set of, of compliance piece there. And so, you know, I think fundamentally it all goes back to, look, if you treat your employees well, they're going to stay. I mean, I think in general, we also have a problem where we've assumed that churn and Turnover is just part of do, the cost of doing business, and most restaurants have a more than 100% yearly turnover rate. It's really hard to build a successful, stable business when you're churning through employees that way. And, and I think we undervalue sort of not all of us, but it's definitely some, a good chunk of the, the the industry undervalues sort of 
what some of the employees can, you know, what the employees can bring to the table. Now, don't get me wrong. There's also plenty of problems there, plenty of challenges there as well. But I think, you know, having a stable crew, you look at, you know, you know, Danny Meyer was a big proponent of this. And then he sort of reneged on his promise, unfortunately, when the pandemic hit and has created a bunch of ill will there. But, you know, there are definitely groups that have that, you know, cohesiveness as a as a clear portion of their sort of corporate ethos. I mean, I think Chick-fil-A has done this in an incredibly well, effective manner. And look at the results they've delivered. Look at their, I, I haven't seen a lot of articles about Chick-fil-A saying they can't hire. I haven't seen a lot of social media posts around people walking off the job at Chick-fil-A, but I have seen that certainly for Wendy's and, you know, Starbucks is unionizing and all these other things. But I think, you know, it's because Chick-fil-A does a great job and they certainly have plenty of controversy surrounding them in other places, but they do a great job because they only sell franchises to people who worked at a Chick-fil-A for a set amount of time. And, you know, those people can get a couple franchises and they can really, you know, make an incredible living. And they, you know, they do an incredibly job, great job promoting that to consumers, promoting that internally. And I think you look at their retention and you look at their hiring and, and what that's done for it. Not that they don't have churn, but that there definitely is a core sort of backbone of that company that 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 really has delivered some exceptional results at, 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 on the back of sort of that that model. And I think that you know. I'm not, you know, I'll be surprised if I don't see more companies sort of employ similar models. Yeah, I agree. That That's a really good assessment too. I think um, when, if even the small operators or independent owners, if they actually just take a minute to try to do some quick maths on the napkin about what it takes to actually train somebody, onboard somebody, make sure that they're learning versus losing that person, I think they'll start to see that a little bit of extra effort in keeping them on board is, is worth worth the money, worth the effort. Um, because that's in every industry. The training takes out way more than I think people realize if you really sit down and think about it. Um, yeah, it's just not, it's just not something our industry values super highly because we've all sort of just assumed it's just going to, you're just going to have churn. And, and, you know, I think giving also the team a really clear path to promotion. Hey, here's what that looks like. Here's the opportunities. And, 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 and you know, that, that creates a great, People want to, you know, look, no one, very few people want to show up to work and doing um, a bad job. They're usually not armed with how to do a good job or given clear metrics about what that looks like. And so, you know, to me, I think that's really where it starts as as sort of business owners and, and restaurant owners is like, what does a good job look like? And how do you give your team a path to advancement and promotion at, you know, they're going to, uh, you know, we, we they're going to start again, 16, 17, 18 years old. You know, how do you give that sort of busser, dishwasher, prep cook, hostess, you know, et cetera, a path to, hey, here's, you know, if you did this right for a year or two, here's how you get bumped to server or here's how you get bumped to line cook or, you know, then after that it's CDC or, you know, sous chef or, you know, grill station, what you know, whatever that may be for any individual concept, you know, giving a clear path and then, and then following through like, Hey, if you do this, this is what the reward will be. You know, really, you know, that drives a lot of retention It drives excitement. It gets people who want to come to work every day and deliver, you know, they're going to deliver exceptional results for you because they're going to, they're going to, they're, they're invested in the outcome. So yeah. I think that's again, the area where we see that done really well in, in single unit family restaurants. 
and we see it done pretty well at some of some of the large players like Chick-fil-A. Um, and then everybody else sort of just has slightly lost the plot on it. Yeah. Well, let's hope, uh, you know, I think with good consultants, uh, consultants such as yourselves uh, and other ones out there preaching this, uh, this word, hopefully people start to get on board and, and make some good changes because this industry is changing like we've just talked about in so many ways. Those that don't see it and react well and uh, pivot, uh, to use a word that's been overused for the last few years, but pivot accordingly, I think, um, won't, won't really be around for much longer. But those that actually see the writing on the wall, get the right partners at the table, I really do think can thrive and, and continue their growth forward. Um, Alistair, this has been great. Thank you so much for your time. You've been very generous and, of course, your brain. How, how do people get in touch with you? How do they find Kitchen Sink? Yeah, so if you come to uh, Kitchen Sink, that's S-Y-N-C dot U-S, not dot com dot U-S, um, web, w- website there. Um, there's a contact page, which actually comes directly to me. You can book time pretty easily on my calendar. Um, or you can send me an email. It's Alistair, which is A-L-I, and then stare like a staircase, S-T-A-I-R, at kitchensink dot U-S as well. Um, those are the two best ways to, to reach out. But yeah, yeah thank, thank you. Thanks for having me, and lovely conversation. Absolutely. Have a good one. If you love what we served up, please follow us at Vigor Branding on Instagram, LinkedIn, YouTube, and Medium. Fork Tales is produced by the team at Vigor. Audio and video post productions provided by Zencaster. Music performed by Jet Trash and licensed through musicbed.com. Joseph handles his own hair, makeup, and stunts. Copyright 2003 to 2021, Vigor Graphic Design, LLC, all rights reserved.